BakerBots LLP provides podcasts for educational purposes only. They are not legal advice. This communication may constitute attorney advertising. Welcome to the Environmental Evolutions Podcast, where we explore the changing landscape of environmental law and policy. This episode is part of our administration transition series and explores what lies ahead for the regulation of coal combustion residuals, often called coal ash, from power plants. I'm Megan Birch, and I'm recording this episode from my closet here in Joshua Tree, California. Like many parents with small or big children, in my case, small, and loud. My closet has become an auxiliary pandemic office space. And through this podcast, I've learned that it's even more versatile than I thought and can also serve as a sound booth. This episode is part of our administration transition series and explores what lies ahead for the regulation of coal combustion residuals. What is a coal combustion residual? You'll probably recognize it better by its nickname, coal ash. With me today to talk about this topic is Kent Mayo. Ken is a partner at Baker Botts in our environmental group, an all-around great guy, have to say. Before joining Baker Botts, Kent spent more than a decade working in the Environmental and Natural Resources Division of the Department of Justice, enforcing the implementation of environmental regulations. Kent, thank you for coming on the podcast today to talk about CCR. Thanks, Megan. <laughs> well, the question is, where should we start? And I think where should we start is with a level set of where we are today, because unlike a lot of the programs that we've talked about to date on the podcast, CCR's regulation is relatively new, meaning there's not as decades of case law and background to really fill us in on. So can, can you take it from there, giving us a level set? Sure. The CCR rule got its uh, start back in the early 2010s when there was a significant collapse of an impoundment at a Tennessee Valley Authority site in Tennessee that contaminated a significant area of river downstream. And that really was a catalyst towards putting in place regulations on coal ash storage and coal ash handling that was not previously there. There had been a lot of state regulation of these issues, but nothing that was focused entirely on how this particular uh, product or waste was stored and handled. And it really is a significant amount of processed waste that's, you know, that's put together every year and, and stored every year by all of the units that burn coal across the country. So in 2015, EPA issued its first CCR rule, and that was a fairly comprehensive set of regulations that cover both how you store how you handle, how you keep records, and how you test to make sure that your storage and handling is not causing any problems. Not surprisingly, as with all these rules that I'm sure you talk about on these podcasts, it was quickly challenged. And there was a, a significant case that made its way through the D.C. Circuit, uh, ultimately known as the USWAG decision. And the D.C. Circuit made a ruling on, on the rule on some particular aspects and decided that there were parts of the rule that they did not feel met the safety requirements that are inherent in RECRA, which is the the basis for the CCR rule, and therefore sent it back to EPA on some some very specific and very important areas uh, that EPA had to go back to the drawing board on. And that particularly was whether or not 
the rules that covered when you have to close a coal ash impoundment, which is a very, very large pond filled with water. I, say, and coal what ash. Is it a, I think we need a picture there for a pond. When you're saying large, can you give some perspective? I mean, we're talking on what... hundreds to thousands of acres uh, in, in size. And you know, these are essentially dammed, in many cases, dammed natural indentations that have been filled with literally you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of tons of ash over time and have been in storage and water over all those years. And there are you know, many, many of these around the country. Most of them were developed far in the past, and so they don't have the kinds of liners that you might see in a more uh, recent vintage landfill or recent vintage storage impoundment because there were no regulations back then. What the D.C. Circuit said was if you have a large impoundment like this and it doesn't have a liner, it is somewhat inherently unsafe under the record rules and you have to, to close it faster than was originally required in the rules. We quickly, not quickly because it took a few years, but in, in 2018. <laughs> okay, in reg- wait, wait, it's quickly <laughs> in regulatory time frame. It's kind of like how you talk about dog years being faster than one year comparison and regulatory years we moved quickly. Yeah, I think that's fair. This ruling came out and it kind of threw the entirety of the coal industry into a tizzy because there were units that they previously thought were not covered by the rule because they had not shown any indications that there might be contamination from the storage. Well, yeah. can, just to back up real quick, when you're talking about the coal industry, you're not talking about coal mining. You're you're talking when you say units, you mean power units, right? Yes. When I say coal industry, I mean coal-fired power industry, and, and that's a great clarification because what we're talking about, again, is the coal ash, not not coal or, or coal residual storage. We're talking about coal ash. So what the original rule said was there were certain safety requirements that you had to meet uh, in order to keep operating, and if you failed to meet certain of those requirements, there would set a deadline you know, by which you had to go ahead and stop using those impoundments. And they also said that if you had impoundments that had natural liners like clay or other substances that were sort of similar in in the way that a liner that was synthetic would work, then you wouldn't have to close at all. And if you had a, a storage impoundment that had not shown any signs of contamination, so it seemed like it was working, you were testing the groundwater around it and there didn't seem to be any leakage, you could again continue to keep that in operation until some future time at which you found leakage. And the court said, no, sorry, anything that's unlined is going to have to be closed on a faster time frame. And unlined here means all those natural things you're talking about, those are not liners. That's not a real synthetic liner that we're talking about. Those don't work. So that's really what caused a great deal of problem across the, the coal generation industry because they have to have somewhere to put this ash. And many, many of those folks who thought they weren't going to have to do anything specific to close these impoundments under the rule, all of a sudden had to close these impoundments or had the threat of closing them much faster. And when we talk about, as we did earlier, how big these are, you get a sense of what it would be like to try to replace them by finding some other place to put this ash off-site that does have a liner. It's not like you're just talking about a little bit of waste. You're talking about a ton and or millions of tons, excuse me. So that's really the position that the industry found itself in in 2018 and EPA found itself in because all of a sudden it had to go back to the drawing board and uh, the D.C. Circuit had not really given it a great deal of guidance other than this didn't work. This isn't good bring enough. me, Bring me a new rock. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> it's the instruction of, I didn't like this rock. 
I would like a new rock. Thank you. <laughs> Very so, clear. You know, in the meantime, you know, this was in 2015, this was an Obama administration era EPA rule. And now it's sent back to a Trump administration EPA to try to fix what's happened. But it's got pretty clear guidance from the DC circuit that you have to make this more stringent, not less. And so that led to kind of a complex series of investigations and, and exercises to try on EPA's part to figure out, like, how do we how do we make this work? How do we solve this puzzle? Knowing that all these people need more time if they're going to fall into this category of landfills that have to close and impoundments that have to close. I mean, they need more time because they don't have alternatives. But we also understand that we no longer can say it's okay to just keep operating without a deadline. And all of that compounded, of course, as we got later in the game, some issues with the pandemic and how that affected, you know, the, the ability of people to plan and develop and install capacity and, and for EPA to undertake its rulemakings and do public notice and all those things you have to do. So, you know, really a challenge. That challenge led to a fairly significant delay between the time of when the USWAG decision came out in 2018 and when we finally got the rules that have really just happened in the last couple of months here at the end of the Trump administration. So I want to talk about those rules, Megan. I don't know if you have other questions on the level set before that. No, I think we've leveled all the listeners out. So <laughs> they're like, move on. <laughs> so let's talk about let's talk about these new rulemakings, and then we'll get into what do they mean and what do our listeners really need to know before we release them from this podcast. We're gonna, you know, keep all the practical stuff to the punchline. But what do, what did we recently learn in the rules? Well, so EPA ultimately, after you know proposing certain rules and going taking comment and going back, finally released two separate rules that address these particular impoundment issues that came out of USWAG. It's called a Part A and a Part B rule. Not very complicated <laughs> uh, until you read them. And then in Part A, <laughs> you have an issue uh, covered on how do we set a timeline for these units. So what EPA did was for units that are unlined and don't have any reason not to be able to get out of a default deadline, they have to stop accepting waste into these ponds by April 11th, 2021. So, you know, still about four or five that's months right out from the, now. Yeah, but that's yeah. right around the corner. If you're trying, when you're talking about the magnitude of waste and having to find a place to put it, it's tomorrow. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and I guess on the bright side, you know, as the, rulemaking process went on, it became clear, you know, a little bit clearer when these deadlines probably were going to land. And so people did have a little bit of time, you know, post use swag to try to understand what they might need to do. But of course, until these rules came out, it was not clear what opportunities there might be for extensions. And that's the other half of this rule was there is an extension opportunity based on one of two things. One, you can either come in and demonstrate DPA that you it's not practical for you to find alternative capacity within the timeframe of April, 2021. And then the other is you can say, we're retiring this unit sometime before the end of 2028. And so we should be able to use the same, you know, kind of setup we have now since it's going to go, you know, out in, in, in a timeframe that's in near, near, near term. But Got in it. both circumstances, the catch is you can't use economic considerations as the driver for why you need alternative capacity. And that's problematic because in many of the circumstances, it is, you know, a very significant economic difference, obviously, to have to find some way to truck this 
to another facility or open up a new landfill or uh, other place to put this stuff, it's a huge cost, but that alone is not something that EPA says is enough to get you through this demonstration process. So that was the Part A rule. And, and the application, so this Part A rule comes out in the end of August, and the application for either one of these long-term extensions was due November 30th. So that's a really fleeting period of time. And, you know, EPA put down some guidance in their uh, rulemaking about what had to be in those demonstrations, but we didn't have any go-bys in terms of, you know, what would be acceptable to EPA, you know, specifically. And so uh, that process has been, you know, challenging for people to try to understand the level of detail and, and the level of proof that they're going to have to show, you know, to get approval on that. And I'm going to come back, put a pin in that. I'm going to come back to that and how that is affected by the change in administration because it, it could very well be significant. Yeah, um, you think? <laughs> yeah. I'm sensing yeah. I'm sensing from the top of the call that we're, this is going to be a three-administration process. We already talked about Obama, we got Trump, and we're going to move right into Biden before we wrap today. So let's That's talk about sure. part, let's talk about B. Tell us about B. Well, just one, just one statistic before that. So people were able to get this together, and they were able to get <laughs> applications in, and actually 35 different facilities applied for an extension based on the alternative capacity and 24 on retirement. So that's a pretty significant number, you know, that are now sitting in EPA's lap. On Part B, the question was, okay, is there a way for us to prove if we have something that we think is better than a synthetic liner? It's rock, you know, it's bedrock. It's something that, that really keeps anything from leaking. Can we make a showing that that's not the same thing as, you know, just having loose, loose uh, filler? And so EPA came up with a process that said, yes, you know, you can make a demonstration. It has to show that it's every bit as safe and more, more so. That's a fairly challenging hurdle to overcome. It affects much fewer number of units because there just aren't that many folks out there who can kind of make this claim. But again, they had to make an initial application November 30th. That part B rule didn't come out until November 12th. So that was a real quick turnaround. And there have been eight units that have made that application. So much, much smaller universe. But again, something that's now sitting with EPA, the way that works is if EPA finds that first application to be adequate, then you get a year grace period, and then you have to put in a more substantive application by November of next year, and you'll be judged on that as far as going forward. So real, you know, long time to wait, and then a lot of flurry of activity here at the end of the administration, as often happens, to try to get these rules out and in place have this image of this desk filled with these papers stacked high and <laughs> the new administration come in there and they're like here i got you a gift <laughs> well, well that's yeah i mean i think you know that's kind of the picture i want to paint so that what i want to talk about next is where do we sit now so here we are on the cusp of the administration changing like where do we sit like what is that picture and it is a bunch of full desks i mean there are so more than 60 applications out there for these two things that are, you know, technical, hundreds of pages, you know, have to be vetted and verified. And one of those, you know, one of those components of an application for an extension based on alternative capacity or retirement is that you have to be in compliance with the entirety of the rule in order to qualify. So that requires, you know, some investigation on EPA's part to make sure that the other aspects of folks' compliance obligations are being met. And we've already seen that there are folks out there from EPA who are investigating that angle, you know, which, which means they're giving it a rigorous look. So we've got all those applications sitting on folks' desks. 
And then at the same time, we had a bunch of other rule, you know, rulemakings that were started in the Trump administration, but did not make it to completion before the end. And those are still some important topics. One of those has to do with what are called legacy impoundments. So these are impoundments that were in place at units that closed before the rule happened. So they're kind of, you know, not really covered by federal rules at this point. And there's a had been an advanced notice of rulemaking that came out recently about how EPA might want to roll those in. There's issues around beneficial use, which is a really important concept in the, the coal generation industry because a lot of this ash can be used in other functions as almost as a product. So you can use it for wallboard or use it in cement block, or you can use it as fill material. And there are certain rules in place now about what you have to do in order to make sure that that's a legitimate usage. But EPA was looking at options that might tighten up those requirements. So, you know, that rule didn't come out, but there are definitely aspects of rules that were in consideration and discussion before that, you know, are are meaningful to to the industry and might be addressed by a new administration. And then there was also a federal permitting program that was authorized under a, an update to RECRA that covered uh, the CCR rule called the WIN Act. And that update allowed for EPA to start its own federal permitting program for CCR. And there was a rulemaking, a proposed rulemaking done on that. Comment was taken, but it, it seems fairly clear that's not coming out before January 20 either. And so you have the pile of applications on one side of the desk and you've got the pile of rules on the other side of the desk and, you know, somewhat fertile ground for the new administration to potentially make some changes in how things are run. I like to think of it as putting their stamp on it, let's say. (laughs) And it might be a a big stamp. (laughs) So, you know, what, what can we expect then when the, the Biden administration comes in and, I think in terms of priority of CCR, you know, it's a little bit hard to judge. Everything so far that we've heard from this administration has been climate and environmental justice. They have not spoken as clearly on you know, specifics of other programs that they're interested in, and they have not focused on CCR with any particular outward explanation of, of how they see that program you know, unfolding under their watch. However, I mean, there are people on the transition team that are with some of the environmental groups who have been the most vociferous against coal ash and have brought all kinds of citizen suits in this area, including including Environmental Defense Fund, including Earth Justice. Those folks are, you know, part of the EPA transition and certainly I'm sure will will not forget about CCR as they move from the citizen role into a more of a regulator role. So you know, it's certainly possible that we'll see a connection between coal ash and environmental justice concerns, but we just haven't heard about that yet. So it's hard to know exactly, you know, how quickly they're going to get to CCR issues. But there are a couple of things that are pending now that will give them some opportunities. One is, as we talk about, you know, we have the Part A and Part B rules that just came out. Both of those were challenged immediately as it's part of the course uh, by environmental groups. And so we have pending rulemaking challenges that the EPA and DOJ are in a position to have to defend those rules. And and, and you might be able to add some color to this, Megan, but certainly the, the opportunity exists for the new administration to kind of walk back from a 
a defense or at least a vociferous defense of some of the aspects of those rules when they come in. And so it's, it, it's a little unclear. There is an opportunity given the challenges. Think, it's possible EPA could take rules back if they wanted to. Yeah, I was about to say, I think what you mean by walk back a defense is ask the court for a voluntary remand. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what? You guys, never mind. If you could just send that back to us, that would be great. Save everybody some time here. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's some reasons why I think that's not the most likely outcome for coal ash, which I'll talk about, but it, but it, is, an, it is a possibility for sure. I mean, the Part A rule, it, we waited so long for it. Uh, it does finally give for most of the folks out there, anyone who's not applying for an extension, you know, a cutoff date that's coming in the next four to five months. I think EPA would be a little bit leery of pulling that back when the you know in lieu of trying to do some additional rulemaking because they're not going to get any kind of faster rule to apply to folks if they take back and start a new rulemaking. So well, I think and can, you know, I, I do think yeah. that's an important distinction because a lot of times you hear oh essentially the pendulum swing of swing one way swing the other way but that was what I was alluding to when I talked about the multi administrations. This looks more like a traditional program mandated under an environmental statute where it's just going to be an iterative process of tweaking rather than scraping back and starting over. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and it, you know, at the end of the day, you know, as much as they would like to complain about it, they've been asking for these uh, impoundments to not be able to accept waste anymore. And that's what's going to happen. So at least as it relates to the main deadline, I just think we're kind of past the point at which even the environmental groups are going to haggle too much over that. Certainly, the issue of extensions is is one that there'll be a lot of interest in, particularly because there were so many units that were able to get their applications in. But I think that's a good transition point for what I think might be where you'll see more action, and that's sort of in the regulatory implementation area, which is you know assessing and grading out these applications and assessing and grading out other aspects of you know required approvals that are needed under CCR that now you know EPA can effectively tighten the rule down just by being more stringent in how they implement those you know those provisions. Uh, so, speaking of that Kent I have a word for you that I'd like you to to explain why it's relevant to our listeners excavation. Yes, well there is a debate going on and has been going on since the beginning of this rule about what is the safest way to actually close one of these facilities, particularly one of these impoundments that, you know, has been wet and oftentimes might be dug down so deep that it actually has, you know, touches groundwater at its most low points. Is it safe to remove, I mean, to close that in place, just dry it out, put a cover on it, monitor uh, but leave leave all of the CCR there, or is it better and should it be required to excavate all of that waste and take it somewhere else where you could have a lined uh, landfill or, or some other you know, area deemed more safe and protective to, to ultimately dispose of it? And, and that and goes that back a, to that image yeah. of acres and acres, thousands of acres. And when people think about this, again, Kemp, before you continue your very helpful explanation, when you talk about excavation, it it sounds good just when you say, oh, I'm going to go put it in a line place. 
it's talking about trucks and all the emissions and the particular, it is a massive undertaking. So when folks are visualizing this and they listen to us, I think it's the, the big picture, just making sure it's uh doesn't sound as simple as it, or it's not as simple as it might sound, I suppose. No, certainly not. And, and, and you know, we're talking about tens of thousands or, or, you know, hundreds of thousands of truckloads of ash that would have to be excavated from some of these biggest facilities. And, you know, that does give you a sense of the scale and, and how much of an issue that is. And that does create all kinds of secondary concerns and, and issues that, that may well overwhelm the concerns associated with closing in place where, you know, you can put groundwater controls in and groundwater monitoring that gives you a pretty good sense of what's happening around the site. So that's an ongoing debate. Part of what folks have to do when they get to the closure stage under the CCR rules, they've got to put closure plans in place and, you know, choose how they're going to address what they ultimately do with the waste that's there. And there are ways in which EPA can involve itself in that process to date, you know, they have not taken a very active role in in those things, but there are ways potentially, you know, through regulatory approvals, but also even through enforcement, which we'll get to in a sec, where they could come in and challenge, you know, a, a non-removal plan, a, a close-in-place plan on safety grounds and kind of put their thumb on the scale of this debate. So far, it's sort of happened, you know, really without EPA weighing in significantly on it. But this administration could very well, you know, become a player in that, and that could be um, something that, you know, significantly raises the cost and the concerns of, around closing these things. So before I took you down this pathway, you had kind of rounded out the regulatory "what can we expect" component of talking about looking forward to the Biden administration. Is there anything you want to add on that topic? Well, yeah, let me go back to one thing, and that's just, you know, EPA, I'm sure, is going to be um, working hard to get through that stack of applications we talked about looming on their desk. But, and, and you know, you may see a host of regulatory determinations before January 20th that, that either grant or deny those applications for extensions. But to the extent that EPA doesn't get those completed, and potentially even if they do, you know, that will that will be an area where the new administration likely will, you know, further investigate or, or further assess that cr the criteria that, that folks have to meet. So I think, you know, that's a big deal. And, and again, rather than pulling back the rule and trying to attack the extension requirements, I think you will instead see EPA looking more closely at what happens in the actual implementation of that. So those are those are big deals. And there's also a big deal around groundwater monitoring because there's some ways in which the rule allows you to ask for uh, a shorter period of time for groundwater monitoring or a less stringent groundwater monitoring protocol for a site. And that has to go through an approving entity. And if EPA uh, under Biden is looking at those, obviously it, it could be a, a less receptive audience than, than the current administration. So those are, those are real ways in which without changing a word in the regulation, you know, these rules could get tightened. 
And then uh, the last thing is really enforcement. And enforcement, I was about you know, to say, been, it's not the last yeah. thing. I've been waiting very patiently. Well, like, oh boy, you're saving <laughs> the the thing that's going to make all the blood pressure rise for everyone. To the last, I, well, that's, last that's right. Point. It's only the last thing because it's <laughs> such a different, you know, such a transition. Because uh, it, it's really what I would say is the sleeping giant here. Let me do one last level setting, and that's simply that when this rule started, it, it was called a self-implementing rule. That is, if you basically had to certify to the agency that you had met engineering criteria for doing the various steps that you had taken. And you had to you know, take this step of putting much of your documentation out in the public on a website so that the agency and everyone else could access it. Then in 2016, something called the WIN Act was passed by Congress, and it made some changes to parts of RECRA. One of the changes that it made was to allow for EPA to enforce the, the federal CCR rule. And under the first rule, there was really no enforcement mechanism for EPA to go in and, and treat it like a normal violation or seek penalties. But the WIN Act made that a component of EPA's power under the CCR rule. And that's a that's a major difference, first of all, but it hasn't really been used. This administration did not use that WIN Act authority for a single enforcement action during the course of, you know, of those uh, subsequent three years. So you know, now you have EPA transitioning, you have a whole bunch of information available to both uh, citizens who are interested in this, but also at EPA because all this stuff has to be put on websites. You have EPA digging into people's compliance because they have to assess that for their extension applications. So you have this kind of recipe for the administration and EPA enforcement being able to move pretty quickly. So, you know, it's not, even if this doesn't turn out to be sort of a regulatory priority for this incoming administration, there's kind of a ready-made recipe here for the agency to start looking into and moving quickly on potential enforcement issues really fast. And, and that is unnerving because, again, we haven't seen that before. And there's a difference between EPA's authority under the WIN Act, which actually does allow them to seek civil penalties, and what the citizen suit provision of RECRA allows, which only allows the citizens to pursue injunctive relief. So we haven't seen many citizen suit RECRA actions because they can't get civil penalties, so it doesn't seem all that fruitful for them. But now we have EPA with a more citizen mindset coming in who can bring the action for any violation ranging from having, you know, not put enough information up on your website to not doing your groundwater monitoring correctly to, you know, choosing the wrong removal or excavation plan. So it is it is a true area in which folks are going to feel a little bit exposed, I think, only because, again, there's so much of their public information out there for EPA to pick and choose among as soon as they, they have the resources to do that. And, and you know, one of the areas I think, as we just talked about, is this closure plan. So, you know, that's something that if you put a closure plan in place and EPA thinks you haven't hit it on the head, I mean, that could be the basis for an enforcement action. Now, it's, it's a technical issue and it's complicated, but I mean, they could come in and argue that you haven't performed the adequate analysis. Or, I was or, about to say, Ken, you know, wait a second. When, when, as you remember from your prior life that I like to pretend <laughs> didn't happen before you joined EPA, before you joined us here at Bigger Bots, when has uh, DOJ ENRD shied away from enforcement based on a technical issue? 
it doesn't <laughs> seem like that's going to be much of a, a showstopper. <laughs> well, it's fair. I think the the mentality would be show us why we're we're wrong, as opposed to <laughs> um, we'll prove to you why you're you're wrong. But you know, it is it is interesting, and it will be interesting to see you know how quickly this this occurs. And and again, we have heard specific information about. EPA under this administration already being out there and looking at people's compliance for purposes of the extensions. We've also heard about people who didn't apply for extensions who are getting uh, requests from EPA and, and uh, investigation interaction with EPA. So even this group uh, who's there now is already out there looking. And so, you know, when folks come in in the new administration, there's already going to be a lot of information that that maybe under some of the other regulations, Clean Air Act and others, maybe hasn't been collected yet. So this this has the, the possibility of being something that could be ramped up quickly if the interest is there. So, you know, I think as far as practical advice goes, it really is to to be very aware of your profile. I mean, I think the last number of years have taught us that with respect to citizen suits, but you know, know what's on your website, make sure you're comfortable with the way that it represents the way that you're monitoring your groundwater, you know, make sure that you're going the extra mile on your submissions as you get closer to resolving, you know, that, you know, hopefully a closure of your site in a way that you think is safe, because, you know, those are the kinds of issues that are going to be called into question with a higher threat level than they were in the past. Well, Kent, that really brings me to one last question for you. You hit all of the important practical takeaways that folks should be thinking about. Where are states in all of this? What should people be thinking about in terms of dealing with their states? Or should they be thinking about this in terms of dealing with their states? Well, the the, the CCR does allow for, federal CCR rule, excuse me, does allow for States to come in and adopt state programs as long as they are consistent, uh, deemed consistent by EPA with the federal rule and have those be the controlling programs in the state. And that has been kind of a laborious process. Under this administration, there have been two approvals, uh, Oklahoma and Georgia, and one partial approval as of this week in Texas. But it has been something that's been a challenge to get through the process, but it is worthwhile, I think, to continue to work with your states to try to drive forward with uh, a state program, because even if the state program essentially mirrors the federal program, it still allows for the state authorities to become, you know, the, the folks who will actually be looking at a lot of your submissions. And that's part of the, the handover or the delegation of, of of the responsibilities when you get a state program in place. So, you know, if you have a good relationship with your state, it's helpful to push that and and make sure that you can try to get them to have a state program in place. If you can't get a state program in place, then it's still helpful, obviously, to be able to work with your state agencies and, and get their support for the kinds of things you want to do. Many of those states already have state landfill programs or state waste programs that that are not exactly the same as CCR, but are have to be complied with anyway. So if you're doing something that meets those requirements, you know, that's obviously helpful when you're trying to convince EPA that you're doing the right thing. So 
it's definitely worthwhile continuing to push on state programs. We'll just have to see what this administration's view, you know, of of state programs and and you know making those approvals is. It, it's just taken a long time so far to get those through. Well, Ken, I have to say thank you so much for joining me today. I now have this image of all of our listeners thinking through their compliance programs in terms of looking for pillows for sleeping giants. You know, where's, <laughs> where's the right fit? So thank you for joining us. I really appreciate your feedback and participation today. Thank you, Megan. I appreciate it. Listeners interested in more information on coal ash compliance and managing litigation risk, essentially finding the right pillow for your giant, Kent's contact information is on our website and in today's episode notes. With that, I'm Megan Burge. Thank you for spending time with me today on Environmental Evolutions. Thank you for listening to this BakerBots podcast. For more information on BakerBots practices, please visit us at bakerbots.com. For over 180 years, through 13 offices in nine countries, BakerBots has the experience, knowledge, and people to solve our clients' most significant legal issues. This presentation is provided by BakerBots LLP for educational and informational purposes only. It is not legal advice. Under the rules of certain jurisdictions, this communication may constitute attorney advertising.